Today on Filmmaker Freedom, an interview with Jason Sink. Jason's directed several micro-budget DIY features, all in the realm of horror and punk rock, and sometimes even the crossover between those two things. He's also experienced firsthand just how predatory some traditional distribution deals can be. So in our wide-ranging conversation, we go deep on Jason's ethos for making cool, grungy flicks that he and his team can be proud of, what to watch out for when offered distribution, his plans for putting on a DIY tour for his current film, and a whole lot more. It was a really, really fun conversation, and I hope you dig it. Hey friend, welcome to Filmmaker Freedom. This is a show for ambitious indie filmmakers who want to make work they're proud of, build audiences, cut out the middlemen, and earn a damn good living selling directly to their fans. My name is Rob Hardy, and I'm a filmmaker and a marketing consultant who's worked with a number of brands and startups to help them connect with online audiences and grow their businesses. Now, in the solo episodes of this show, I like to share direct lessons that I've learned from that experience and help you build an audience and sell your films. But truth be told, my perspective is far from the only one. That's why I like to balance those shows out with long-form interviews with other entrepreneurial indie filmmakers. The goal is to share conversations that are really substantive, inspiring, and genuinely honest and transparent because there's just not enough transparency in the world of indie film, especially when it comes to the business side of things. And one last thing before we begin, I just wanna thank my good friends over at Musicvine for sponsoring this show. Over the years, I've used just about every music licensing platform out there, and I can say without hesitation that Musicvine is at the very top of my list. The quality and uniqueness of the music are outstanding. The prices are reasonable, and the design and functionality of their website are second to none. It's just a pure pleasure to use. So if you're a discerning filmmaker who needs quality music, just go to musicvine.com and use the code FILMFREEDOM for 25% off your next order. All right, now let's get into today's interview. Jason, what's up, man? Glad to have you here. How goes it, Rob? Thanks so much for having me. It goes. We're always it just goes. having tech tech troubles with these things, but we made it. We're here, and we're going to record ourselves a podcast. Damn it. Hell yeah. All right. So with the last episode, um, with Mike Dion, actually, um, I started a new tradition, and I'm calling it the Fast Five, where I essentially ask you five, what essentially amount to like icebreaker questions is what they are, if we're being honest with ourselves. Okay. To help us uh, get to know you. Are you ready for the Fast Five, Jason? Ready enough, I guess. Yeah. How how ready can anyone actually be? So the first question is a big one. It's an important one. And it is, uh, what's your favorite snack food? Oh, wow. Uh, Anything with spicy cheese. Like it could be chips, it could be pretzels, but anything with like a, a spicy cheese. How do you feel about spicy Cheetos? Do they count? Yeah, I really like anything spicy. Uh, Cheetos kind of terrify me because of all the orange that gets on you. I just feel like it's like poison. But anything yeah. spicy will entice me. <laughs> Love it. That should be uh, that should be your catchphrase from now on. Maybe we'll get you anything like a t-shirt. Anything spicy will entice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
you show up at like a picket with that as a sign. Anything spicy, yeah. will and All right. That's yeah. enough of that. Question number two. What's the last film, movie, show, whatever you want to call it, or even just piece of media generally that really impressed you? You know what? This is awesome. Great question. Because uh, just last night, my roommate and I, we watched Dave Chappelle's Sticks and Stones. And that really, it kind of blew my mind. Uh, I mean, he just, I don't know, I don't want to ruin anything for anybody, but it's a, it's a fairly, um, it's, it's not made for PC culture that no. stand up. It's a, yeah. it's very much a slap in the face of PC yes. culture. It's like a big, not even slap in the face, just like a, a big flagrant middle finger. In I was, th- I was thinking the same thing. It's the equivalent of Dave Chappelle, just throwing up both middle fingers and saying, just watch me. And I thought that was <laughs> the really impressive at this point in time. Dude, right? Yeah, no. Props to props to him. I agree. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen that, dear listener person, maybe go watch it. Unless you have very delicate PC sensibilities, in which case, um, maybe it's don't. Too clear. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Question number three is: the zombie apocalypse has come down upon us. It's happening. It's here. There are zombies. They're eating brains, and you have to. Um, do as everybody does in the zombie movies and that's go basically be um what's the word i'm looking for you have to go live on the road just be sort of like a migrant um and you only can take three things from your house you have to leave immediately and you can only take three things for your upcoming zombie apocalypse journey what are those things oh wow um my trusty baseball bat oh my god this is tough uh so the baseball bat, a a pack of toilet paper. Mm, that's a good one. <laughs> I think that's good for bartering. Um, and and as many pairs of I don't know if pairs count, but I I would like as many pairs of socks as I can hold. Yeah, you might be able to like make that one item if you just like roll them all into one big bundle and be like, look, yes. one thing. Yeah. Yeah, like a roll of, uh, of uh, rubber bands, but it's just all socks. Yeah, exactly, dude. No, I, <laughs> I think those. I think that's my three. I think I feel you on the socks. Like I did a, a bunch of like backpacking and things like that back in the day, and there is nothing worse in the entire world than having to hike or go anywhere with wet socks. Like it's mm-hmm. it's. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemies. Well, and I just I just burned my way through like Band of Brothers and the Pacific recently and just watching people get like trench foot and things oh, like no. that it's so terrifying to me like yeah. I, I couldn't oh yeah so yeah. socks socks love it good answers all right question four if you weren't a filmmaker if you weren't making like crazy punk horror films what would you be doing with your life i'd probably still be a teacher I guess, because uh, I was a teacher for four years and then uh, my school closed down permanently. And so I, I don't teach anymore. I still am a licensed educator, but I don't do it. Um, and it's it was kind of always a fallback plan, plan. I really do like teaching, but it's definitely not what I want to be doing. So uh, now I've kind of found a side hustle that is better to support my filmmaking. When I, when I was a teacher, it exhausted me so much and I brought my work home. So I really couldn't I didn't have the energy to keep the momentum going and keep making movies, but but that's still probably what I'd be doing. Love it. Question five. What's one lesson you've learned really could be anything. Um, this just made the most impact for you and your filmmaking, uh, whatever journey that is that you're on. 
Um, yeah, so I think it's actually been shifting my my focus on the journey um, because I had this horrible preconceived notion that like you'd make one movie and then that's it. You're a success and it's your calling card and everybody's going to support you uh, and the money's going to come rolling in and you just get to keep growing and growing. And, um, and when that didn't work out for me, it was really, it was crippling for a while, like emotionally, financially, everything. Um, and now that I've been able to shift my focus to the growth and the journey of the process, uh, I've been enjoying it a lot more. I, I still stress all the time. You know, I'd be lying if I said I didn't, but I've, I've been, as of late, I've been doing a better job of stopping to smell the roses and have fun with what we're doing. Dude, that's such a killer answer. And I, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's my, uh, <laughs> And this is probably true for like so many people in the film world, but like that, um, that mirrors my journey so closely, like pinning all of my hopes on like one outcome. And for me, it was becoming like a professional cinematographer and then getting burned out and depressed and all of that. And eventually coming to realize that the path to getting to that place, like as much as I wanted to be like a super high end, like DP in New York, be shooting like dramatic features shows, all of that cool shit, like the path to get there is 15 to 20 years. And if you're not going to enjoy that path, which I, I had an intuitive sense that I wouldn't, then it's probably not the right journey. But you like, it's, it's all about finding a journey that you're willing to go on and that you're like, like that incites or that excites you, man. Like, I don't know. I'm just sort of rambling at this point, but no, 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 no. That's perfect. That's I, I've just been thinking about that a lot lately because, you know, I can, I can give a pretty good answer, which I think at the core of me is my answer. But then if you stop me, you know, even hours apart, not even days apart. Like I, I just went to this film festival in Virginia for about five days. And if you came up to me at a certain time, I would be like, this is the best time of my life. I'm so stoked that I'm here. And then three hours later, I'm like, man, I'm in debt. And I don't think that this is going to work. And I don't know if I should give up. And um, so I, I think you, if it's not, at least worth it while you're going through that like if you're not like this is still what i should be doing then you shouldn't do it you know it's just it's not worth it i would never wish the stress that i feel upon my greatest enemy but at the same time it yields some of my my biggest highs so yeah i mean I, it's I, cliche but like there's there's no light without the darkness there's no high without the low yeah. like yeah, yeah. super when cliche, i got I, I'm like, my mind is kind of blown that I'm on this podcast right now because I found your podcast at a time when I was really, really at my low. I don't want to say lowest, but I was pretty damn close to there. And, and it really helped me get through some stuff. I listened to those episodes like over and over again uh, to help myself out. And so it's really, it's really weird to be on here right now, but it's, it's great. I love it. Like, I, I'm so happy that I can share with some people that like, as long as you can focus your attention in a different way, then there is light at the end of the tunnel. And even the journey is kind of a part of that. You know? Yeah. Dude, I love that. I don't know if I, did you ever tell me that before? Like that makes me feel the warm and fuzzies that my podcast helped in that moment or in some of those moments. Like, no, I don't think I told you like how, yeah, I literally would listen to those episodes over and over again, specifically the ones about like depression and dude. anxiety while I was um, while I was making that last year, like that whole season on um, just like the psychology side of filmmaking on on yes. all of the internal struggles like that, 
Um, I happened to be going through all of it myself, like while I was making it. And it was one of the defining struggles of last year. Like it was a really, really low point, but getting, getting it done actually helped a lot. Like I was applying Mm -hmm. all of those lessons that I'd learned like previously in my life, but like I had to essentially take them and reapplying as I was making that season, which was really kind of interesting, but yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I feel really really bad for people that I've met or I know that um, when they struggle through those things, it kind of cripples them and they stop working or they, they at least kind of throw in the towel on what their vision was. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to at least not be that type. And I don't know what makes me that type. Maybe it's like my parents work ethic or I I don't know what it is, but, um, but I just keep plowing through. And even if I'm unhappy with the end result, I still wind up releasing that thing, <laughs> you know? Uh, but I think, I think it's really helped me, but no, like listening to some of those episodes is just, I felt like you were talking directly to me. Like we were old friends. <laughs> Hell yeah. And now <laughs> we had already commiserated. Yeah. yeah. And now we're, and now we're old friends again. Look at us go. Yeah. 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 All right. So I want to hear about um, the films you make essentially. Cause you're, you've got like a very, um, I don't know, grungy niche horror punk rock kind of thing going on so like how would you describe yourself as a filmmaker uh diy that i mean that is like in a nutshell do it yourself has kind of always been my thing um and it started with you know skateboarding videos and jackass ripoffs and stuff like that but um it's it's slowly grown and i actually think it's really interesting if you were able to watch all three of my films in a row then you basically watch me go through film school because i i didn't go to film school i minored in film studies at purdue but i didn't major and it wasn't a film school anyway right but for me like the the growth and and making these things get bigger and better and incorporate more and more people and to learn that way has been I think invaluable. Like, I hope that if somebody finally says, okay, I've seen your work, I want to support you by coming on as an executive producer, giving you a real budget, then I think I'll be in a better position to take that on than a lot of other people because I started with nothing. Like, you know, our first feature cost a thousand dollars and, and we didn't win a lot of awards and we didn't know what we know now. Um, But, but I think that that's kind of, huge and it's like every every time it's stressful and frustrating but the momentum just kind of keeps growing and i keep learning and so i think as long as you keep learning and growing then that's that's half the battle but but music's always been a big influence for me it's a huge thing in my life and so in each movie i i I still go back and listen to my first movie soundtrack and think like I wouldn't change anything about it. So, so I think that that's actually been a guiding force with all of my movies. And that's kind of where, you know, the Mohawk logo for weird on top pictures comes in. It's why we just made a punk rock horror movie. It's because like music is really important to me and it's kind of helped shape all the things that I've made. Yeah. Is that why it's called weird on top? So it's called, uh, so that kind of was a happy accident. Um, My original uh, production company title was it was dumb. We created it in high school just to it be always, offensive. It always is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, was, it was called STD Films. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and so we thought that was super funny at the time, but we realized we needed to grow up a little bit. Um, and so when I was thinking about it, I really wanted to showcase the DIY stuff and like my punk influences. 
And kind of at the same time as we were talking about a Mohawk logo, I looked over at a poster on my wall, which was David Lynch's Wild at Heart. And I, and I thought of the line that Laura Dern says, she says, this world's wild at heart and weird on top. And That's there right. it was, weird on, yeah. weird on top pictures. Beautiful. So tell me about that, um, that first film that you made for $1,000. What was it about? What was the process? What are your fondest memories of getting that thing done? Yeah. Uh, so it's called When I Die, and it's about my hypothetical suicide. So um, we wanted it to feel real. Not, I mean, it is a mockumentary, I guess, but it's really that we wanted to trick people into thinking I was dead. Uh, for a while, we even tossed around the idea of actually like making people think I was dead, like people from my high school, and then going and interviewing those people. Uh, we kind of backed off of that because we realized that was pretty that's pretty shitty. But um, but so we made this movie basically for the cost of a camera and a couple other little things. Um, but I'm dead before the movie starts. And it's about my buddy Alex Lukens trying to figure out why I killed myself. And it's sort of about this like struggling artist who can never get anything right. Um, and he's just trying to figure it out. So he interviews my friends and my family. Um, and there are a lot of interesting things about about that first off telling your family and friends that you're going to make a movie about killing yourself um, was was a really hard thing to get their heads wrapped around. Um, the first time that we interviewed my mom, we actually couldn't use it because she really got scared and started like bawling her eyes out. She's just, I know she's like, she's the sweetest person in the whole world. And she just like couldn't handle it. So we we cut it out and filmed her a second time and had her like fake the tears. Um, and after a while, they started to realize that like this was just a project that we were just trying to get off the ground. And the whole idea was we already had all this footage from when we would do those jackass ripoffs and skate videos and stuff. So we thought, what do we have at our disposal? It's all this footage from my past. So maybe we can cut that all together and then create a story around that footage. So, yeah. Yeah. I, so I love the theme, like the theme I'm sensing underneath or this piece of subtext that I really love is that you're using what you have access to. Um, cause you know, this as well as anybody, I'm sure like a lot of filmmakers start out with the big vision and then they're crippled by it because they're not willing to compromise or they're not willing to start small. Um, and I mean, you, you started where you were with what you have and you used it and maybe to great mm -hmm. effect. I haven't seen the film yet, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it definitely, it definitely grows and, I, and I'll hook you up with that one. I'll hook you up with all three if you want, cause it'll be really interesting to see what somebody like you thinks about it. Um, and it's, yeah, I think you need to start small, be realistic. And I think what a lot of times what people do is they'll start big and they'll just start doing it without really seeing what the end goal is or understanding what it's going to look like. And so then they get frustrated that it's not turning out how they want and then they get stuck, you know, whether, and that could be a script. It doesn't have to be that they started shooting. I know some people that are, every time I talk to them, they're working on the same script and it's been years of that script. And it's like, no, like you have to, you have to like plant other seeds to be harvested later. I think I have like nine scripts sitting on the shelf, you know, and everyone's been a learning process and not all of them will turn into movies, but they've all been a yeah, part but, of the process. Yeah. But if you, if you spend, you know, five years investing into one script, your expectations for where it's going to go are going to be sky high. And when the sort of horrifying, depressing realities of this industry don't align with those expectations very very inevitably you're going to end up just kind of uh burned out depressed feeling like um i don't know 
you're you're not cut out for this when in fact you just you i don't know the the path you took wasn't a or wasn't a uh what's the word i'm looking for like you didn't level up to that le- to that place in the correct way where you were sort of like worthy of the bigger opportunities not like internally worthy but like capable of handling the bigger opportunities yeah uh, it's well i think if a goal is not attainable or if there aren't like measurable steps for you to hit to reach that goal then you're not going to hit that goal like i could say i want to be you know quentin tarantino but Nobody's just going to come knocking at my door because I want that so bad. And I'm a big Tarantino fan. Like you have to be, you have to have these steps to make your way up. And I'm, I'm still on those steps. I'll probably be on those steps my whole life. Cause like, you know, if you asked me 10 years ago, where do you want to be in 10 years? I'd probably say making a movie for 30 to $40,000 and touring it around the world. And I'm doing that now. And I still feel like a nobody, like a garbage person. <laughs> and Like I'm still stressed out all the time. And you know, so it's never, I, I think if you really are, if this is what you want to do, you're probably going to never stop seeking more. You're always going to be frustrated. And so I think you have to like be, you have to get that through your head and get adjusted to it. You know, I think instead people just have the, they have those, you know, they have rose colored glasses on and they're just like, one day I'm going to have the big house and the big car and it's all going to be, roses and it's it's just not realistic and even you know you see these celebrities that wind up sadly killing themselves and it's like so obviously money is not the measure of happiness you know so i think you have to have some joy in the process maybe not all joy i don't <laughs> i know i don't but there's enough joy to keep me going absolutely absolutely so that first film, and I think this is why we originally connected, um, or something we we talked about when we originally connected, was that first film, you took it out, you toured it around some festivals, and you ended up getting a distribution deal for it. Uh, so no, actually, so I talked to you about my last film. Oh, that was, how many how many features have you made at this point? So, so this is my, this is my third. Okay. Tech technically it feels like my first like straight edge kegger is the first narrative feature that i shot the whole way through so the the first movie when i die we didn't even have a script for we basically just shot scenes and thought this will fit here this will fit here and we just frankensteined this thing together and um, then we self-distributed we never even considered getting distribution elsewhere we didn't contact anyone we just were like We'll make it ourselves, we'll release it ourselves. And it, it was just an easy thing. Um, the second one is the one that you were just talking about, Night Terrors, which is a old school horror anthology, kind of like Creep Show or Body yeah, Bags. that's right. Um, and so, yes, we took that on tour, not quite like we're doing now, but we took it to a few fests and we contacted some distributors and we got a distribution deal. Um, and I'm not going to name drop anybody. People can look it up online and figure it out. But we kind of got screwed on that distribution deal. And at the time, that was a big bummer and frustrating. And now it's to me, it's just I shrug it off. And I'm like, well, that's, that's how I learned to not do that again. And, and it's made for this time around for it to be at least somewhat easier yeah. to navigate. Yeah. I'd really love to dig into just some of like the, I don't know, maybe not the juicier details, but just the details of that whole story. Because like, I think a lot of people, like they take their their first feature, even their second or third out on the festival circuit, if the if they didn't learn that lesson the first time around. And there's a lot of people who get taken advantage of by rather unscrupulous distributors. Um, Mm -hmm. 
So I'm curious how that came about. Did you, um, you mentioned you contacted distributors with the film or did they, yeah. did they come to you and make an offer? Um, we did have a couple people approach us, but they were, they, they struck us as like vultures, you know, right from the get go. So we didn't even look to them what we did and it didn't work out in our favor. But what we did is we looked at other DVDs that we had on the shelf of movies that we thought were comparable. We found their contact information for their acquisitions departments, contacted them with the trailer and would see if they were interested. Um, and through that, we found a couple that were interested and one that just seemed like the best deal we got um, we did get money up front we got a minimum guarantee but the an mg is what people call them um for anybody who doesn't know but sometimes those can be in the thousands you know I've, i just talked to somebody at the festival that his last mg six years ago was fifty thousand dollars and it blew my mind and totally bummed me out momentarily um because because we got five hundred dollars up front and for us, it was just like, it was a signing bonus. And we thought like, well, we've got a distributor to go to bat for us. We've got a decent enough product so we can, we can sit back, breathe a sigh of relief. And our total budget was $3,500. So like 500 up front really isn't that bad. Um, but that is the last bit of money that we ever saw from the film. Um, and it took me years to come to this conclusion because, you know, we're like six years into that deal. We're finally about to get the movie back in a year. Uh, but my my conclusion now is either one, they are terrible at their job because it, if you can't turn a profit on a $3,500 movie, then you're bad at your job. Or two, they screwed us. I, either way isn't great, <laughs> but but it was a big it was a big learning moment for me. And we're still learning, you know, I'm still nervous about what we're about to do. Um, but one of the main things that it taught me is that I should keep my theatrical rights. Like I could have made, I could have made back 3,500 bucks just showing to friends and family a couple times a year. You yeah. know what I mean? Like we could have easily done that, but yeah. So it was, it was all rights, all rights deal for seven years. Is that what it was? Yep. It was worldwide all rights for seven years. And now, and they must just be lazy I, or, or incompetent. One of the two, because you can't find that movie on anything, any streaming platform. They could even throw it up on prime or Tubi TV. Like money could be coming in from that property, you know, and that's hearing you talk about keeping your rights and having a property that you can make money off of for the rest of your life. That's, that's been something I've been thinking about a lot and I'm trying to be strategic about how, yeah. how we do that. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, at least you've got those rights coming back to you sometime soon because you yes. like you probably as well as anybody know how big the market for, for good, like DIY horror content out there, like yeah, the internet eats that shit up. So e even if you just get it on on an ad supported site like like Tubi or you, you're streaming on Amazon, um, with the bare minimum of marketing, you'll make more in a week than you ever got back. Exactly. From. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm curious. Did you did you ever try to like reach out to this to this distributor to I don't know get information, get some reports back? Did they have like what was in the contract about how they would report about that kind of stuff? That was kind of a uh, weird disjointed question, but no, no, no. Yeah. We, we have done some of that. We have reached out. Um, they're supposed to give us reports every six months. 
Um, but basically every time we get those reports, it just, the numbers don't seem to add up to us. Um, and a part of that is because of what they claim they've spent on marketing, which we have seen. Yeah. Right. So we've, we've seen one ad in, um, horror hound magazine, one ad ever. And that's right after our release. And actually the ad was shared between two films. It wasn't like, here's night terrors, everyone. It was night terrors in this other film. Um, but that's the only thing we ever saw. And they claimed that they just, they marketed the hell out of it. And they just were surprised that they'd never got enough sales. And it's just, again, either they're bad at it or they screwed us. It's one of the two. Um, and I should have known, you know, that something was rotten in Denmark right from the get-go because I told them how much I cared about the cover. And I knew how important that was for films like, you know, like Ty West's House of the Devil. He, he says that the majority of his success was from that cover and that That's poster. Damn good cover. It is yeah. so good. It's yeah. so good. I still love it. And I love that movie. But um, but yeah, we so we really told them how important that was to us, but they kind of said, Well, we understand and we'll give you we'll give you this the input, but like ultimately it's up to us. And so then we spent like nine months waiting for the release and begging every month or two, can we please see the process like progress? What's going on? And they waited until the very last minute, showed it to us. We hated it. And I went back to him like, that's awful. Can I please, even if I have to pay somebody to do something better, can I? Um, and they said, no, sorry, we're going to press. And then that's what we were stuck with. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's awful. <laughs> Dude, no, that's, that's really disheartening. And I've, mm -hmm. it feels like almost everybody I've talked to who's gone down the traditional distribution path has some similar gripe about how their film was marketed or portrayed or the, the, the additional work. Sometimes films have been re-edited by the distributor because they have like, there's, there's so many different shenanigans that can, can sort of take place in that, that, and like, like you, you know, this from like being part of this community, like I'm such a, a big proponent of this idea of essentially creating true fans, like people who just love your work so much that they'll end up following you and buying what you do um, in perpetuity, essentially. But mm -hmm. if that proposition starts out with essentially deceptive marketing, as a lot of these things do, like maybe they'll recut the trailer to make it look like something it's not so that they can make a little bit more money up front. Like that mm -hmm. damages that relationship right out of the gate, not even damages destroys. If you, if you yeah. don't set the correct expectations for people coming in, um, like you, you, kill any chance of creating people who want to follow you, who want to consume your future work right out of the gate. So it's, it's just another one of those things to look out for, man, and to yeah. be wary of. Um, I don't know. Are there, are there any other lessons that you took from that last film, especially on the distribution side of things that you're, you're sort of carrying with you now as you're, as you're doing your thing now? Uh, there's a lot. I mean, that, it took us two and a half years to shoot that movie and the goal. So something that I've learned over the last two movies is that you shouldn't be so ambitious that you, that you're, you're kind of screwing yourself in the quality of, of the film. So in that last film, we had $3,500 and we made a four part horror anthology with probably 20 locations, probably a hundred total people involved. We had like Hollywood level, special effects and it's like that is just it's just insane um that, that's a thing that we knew we had to dial back on this film and we we did we did a very good job of it but now after this film i'm still going we need to dial it back even more 
and so we're gonna we're gonna do that again how did you how did you pull that off for thirty five hundred dollars like is it just a lot of a lot of people working working for free like working nights yes. and weekends like yeah so we did a few things we we begged borrowed and stole stole everything um so for this movie for straight edge kegger i kind of screwed myself out of money by trying to take care of everybody as well as i could and and in night terrors we were just naive enough that we basically screwed everybody over <laughs> like we didn't feed people well we didn't pay for travel um we basically just paid for the camera and the special effects and that was it like at most people would have like bags of chips and water oh no um, yeah and then even the equipment um we we kind of did this we kind of went around uh what we should be doing um we talked to people that were still at purdue and had them rent their equipment uh lighting gear and sound gear and so we were able to use everything for free for about two thirds of the movie. Once, once finally people graduated, so they couldn't borrow that stuff anymore. Then we had to spend a little bit to get done, but, but really that, I mean, that's the way that we were able to do it. Um, and then in this movie in straight edge kegger, it just wasn't possible. We needed, um, we needed insurance to do it properly. We needed an actual uh, light. We basically had a uh, grip and electric, truck we couldn't afford the truck so we used my father's van <laughs> uh but we showed up packed all that stuff up from sna in chicago they're great guys um but still all that stuff adds up and then you know we tried to shoot the whole feature in 11 days and that wasn't possible so then every time we had to go back and shoot we'd have to re-rent things and it just it kind of snowballed um and that's the thing i learned to not do again it's like you, you need to set a budget and stick with it. But I got, I got in this weird position where like we raised $15,000 on Kickstarter, which that's a whole other story. I don't think I'd ever do crowdfunding again. Um, but we raised 15,000 and that was never the intended goal. We hoped we went drastically beyond that goal. And when that didn't happen, I had to make a choice. Do you make the movie for 15,000 and sacrifice quality? Or do you put yourself in debt with your credit cards and make it how you want to make it? So I opted for that choice. I hope everybody makes me look like the smartest guy in the room. And after we do this tour and we do distribution that we make our money back and hopefully turn a profit. But I, I still don't know. It may be, it may be one more lesson, you know, to not try things like that again. I'm like I said, I'm still learning, but that's yeah. how we were able to do those films. Yeah. I want to go down the Kickstarter rabbit hole because you sound, Oh, Oh no. Yeah. You, you sound a little, uh, a little not, or like you're not a fan. Um, cause you know, most people would be like, Oh, you raised 15 K from Kickstarter. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. It Proof does. Them. It sound, it sounds very nice. Um, so, and it, okay. So it's kind of a catch 22. It's a double edged sword for me because without doing that Kickstarter, we never would have really made this movie. And so ultimately, sure, it was probably a good idea. Um, but it was seriously the most depressed, the most low I've probably ever felt is, is doing that Kickstarter campaign. It's, you know, 30 or so days, whatever you set it at, but um, of just constantly begging people to, to support you. And ultimately what I found out is that, you know, it's called crowdfunding. You're hoping for this big crowd 
And instead, what it usually is, is you, the friends and family that you have putting in all their money. And so it kind of, to me, it was the opposite of what I wanted. I wanted strangers to be like, great project, let's support it. And instead, we only had a few of those. And the rest, it was my friends and family pitching in their hard earned money. And I'm just like, that's not what I wanted. If that's what I, if that's what I thought it was going to be, I would have gone and talked to each and every person, friends and family and asked them for their money instead of giving a chunk to a crowdfunding platform. But I didn't want to do that. And so, so it was very stressful and it's still very, you know, I'm not obligated to pay back a dime of what I got. That's a part of crowdfunding, but like my goal is to turn a profit and then still give money back to all the people that supported us. Like that's ultimately what I would love to do. And then that would show them, all right, he's not a dick and he does care about us and uh, wants us to go on this ride with him. So then they would support me again. You know, that's, that's what I would like to do. But it was just, it was, it was really hard. It's so time consuming and it's, it's kind of dehumanizing, I guess. I, I don't know how else to say it, but it really just makes me feel, and I know this isn't what it is, but it makes me feel like I'm out there panhandling and kind of like yelling in people's faces every day to please go support me in my dream. And, you know, and, you know, we were begging for like, a dollar from people, but it's, it's, it's still their dollar. And, and people are only going to invest what they feel they can invest and when they can invest it, you know, it, it, life doesn't work on your crowdfunding schedule. Uh, sure doesn't. <laughs> and, and for 30 days, that's how you have to treat it is like, everyone stop what you're doing. Don't get your latte today and give me that money instead when yeah. they may really want their latte. Did you, um, did you make the same mistake that I've made and a lot of folks have made of essentially overpromising on the reward side of things to the point where you end up having to spend a good chunk of what you made and on shit like posters and DVDs and like all of that. Yes, we definitely did. Um, the saving grace, it's not really a money thing, but like we are drastically beyond our deadlines for our rewards. Um, but we were lucky that our crowd was small and that they seemed to be more supporting me and like the dream than so much the project. Um, and so they've been very understanding as I push things back and explain to them why it's taken so long. So, so, you know, yes, we're going to lose some money, even just shipping, you have to ship all those things and that costs money. So, um, you know, ultimately, we're not going to lose money on the Kickstarter, but that 15,000 drops down drastically. It's more like we probably ultimately, it's probably $10,000 or so that we got from from crowdfunding. So it definitely eats it up. And, and a part of it is, so we had a buddy who made a card game. It's a really good, really funny card game, but he did a Kickstarter campaign. He had a, he had a goal of like 25,000, I think, and they raised $80,000. Shit. And so we thought, let's model it after his, let's kind of copycat, let's even ask him to contact his backers to support us. And we thought that'll ensure our success. And instead, uh, you know, there, there's not quite a correlation between card game folks and horror movie folks. So it really yielded nothing for us. Um, but that was our thought was we'll, we'll set it a realistic goal of 15,000 and hopefully we go up to 40 and then the movie would have been paid for. And I would have been able to release it without dealing with distributors, without doing a theatrical tour, without taking it on the film festival circuit. But since that didn't happen, I have to 
play my cards right to ensure that we can actually make our money back or more specifically my credit card debt can be paid off yeah yeah so tell me about the movie straight edge kegger what is it what's it about what's i don't know just give it give it to me straight so it's a punk rock horror movie and it's really based around the straight edge community um, it's kind of, it's not set in the nineties, but it's based off of these nineties hardline straight edgers that would like punch cigarettes out of people's mouths and stuff. Um, but I, which I love, I think it's awesome, but I, it's really just, you know, a lot of people think it's all about straight edge and that's not really it. It's really just a horror movie. It's like a coming of age love story mixed with a thriller. And then punk rock is the backing music. I mean, that's really it. I just wanted to make a punk rock horror movie and thought straight edge is a thing that really has never been brought up in film. I mean, it has a couple times, but not to this effect. And, and so I just wanted to make a horror movie dealing with punk rock. And I thought straight edgers were kind of the, the perfect people to pit against these other, just these punk rockers. Um, so it's really about, it's about, a guy breaking edge, he leaves his gang of militant straight edgers that he helped found because he's not into it anymore. He's not into what, they, what they're doing. Um, and then they only know how to react violently. And then when the violence turns deadly, then everybody has to kind of dig in their boot heels and fight it out to the death. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. And when you, uh, like I'll say, like for anybody out there who's listening to this, go look at the trailer for it, Straight Edge Kegger, because it's a fucking killer trailer. Like it looks so good. And when Thank you posted you. it, you posted it in um, the the Freedom Fighters community, and both Travis and I, and I think it, maybe somebody else, were like, "Man, this looks a lot like Green Room in like the best way possible." Like, so so I'm glad you brought that up. So Green Room, I do love Green Room, so don't get me wrong. Um, but I wanted to make this punk rock horror movie before Green Room came out, and we started planning this, and then Green Room came out, and so. I had to go, all right, so how can we still make this movie without people just saying we're a green room ripoff? And luckily, I think we did accomplish that. Like once people watch the movie, they'll realize how different the two films are. Uh, but the thing that kind of keeps, it's like pecking at the back of my head. It's driving me nuts because most people compare us to green room without acknowledging the fact that they had $4.4 million to make that movie. And we had 35 grand and most of that's on credit cards, you know? Um, so, so I'm glad that people are comparing it to that, but I at least hope that when they watch our movie, they understand that like, this was a DIY, like this is probably the only punk rock horror movie that's ever been made in this like punk rock style where we all, we had no money and we crashed on the floor all together, like living, commuting as hippies shooting this film. I hope that people understand that when they watch it. Hell yeah. And you're also doing, um, the same sort of DIY punk rock style tour with it because i think we'll we'll get into how your like your plan for distributing and like how you've been touring it around festivals and all of that but like i really want to talk about your your plans for the tour and how you're sort of like modeling the tour after the ethos of the film um so yeah hit me so uh you know you can you can book theaters around the world and pay money that that we don't have and and that's not what i wanted to do like my thought is why not treat it like it's a touring punk band? And so you're contacting these venues. Sometimes it's bars. Sometimes it's like a, a house show um, and saying, hey, how can we get you some money? We get us some money. We spread the word about the film and, and we just have fun with it. And so I'm paying zero money up front. 
any venue that says it costs money up front, I say, well, then no thanks. I'm sorry, we can't work something out. Um, and you would be shocked at how many people are willing to help out with something like that. And, you know, you've said many times, like the riches are in the niches, right? Uh, and, and I, a lot of people, when I first came up with this movie, or even when I started shopping it around would say it's too niche, it's too niche. And it's so funny to me now, because we're being approached from by people around the world because of the niche, like, we were contacted by this group in California, Numbskull Productions, and they're helping us set up a series of, of tour stops. And they've been the most supportive people in the entire world. They're setting up this huge showing in LA um, on Edge Day on October 17th. And all of that is because of the niche. It's because of the punk rock. Um, and horror, you know, horror is kind of my bag. Like I, I love horror movies, but I kind of love punk rock equally. So um, and we've seen much more support from the, the punk rock and straight edge and hardcore communities than we have the horror community. Um, I think we we're slowly like getting the attention of the horror fans. Um, but when they, but when they first see the poster and the title, they just think, Oh, I'm not into punk. So it's probably not going to be for me. And then usually they want wind up like pleasantly surprised by the film. Whereas the punk rockers are more like whether they like horror or not, they're like punk rock movie. I'm in. So, so that niche has really helped us out, but, but yeah, all of the tour stops, we, we aren't paying anything up front. There are some tour stops where like they take the first cut, the first hundred dollars, the first $200. And then there's a 50, 50 split. Some are just doing a 60, 40 split with us. And some are nice enough to do like an 80, 20 split where we get 80%. Yeah. Um, are you touring yeah. along with the movie, like going to all of these stops and like doing, making them into events and things like that? As best I can, yes. But there, so the whole point is to make money back. You know, I, I wish I had the money to be able to travel to all these places and I just can't, it's not realistic. So I'm either sending people, you know, when I can't go as best I can, or we're also filming intros. So like we have a screening October 3rd in Toronto and I know I can't make it. So I'm filming an intro that's personalized just for them. It's not like one video that's an intro for the whole tour. It's like Toronto guys, I'm sorry I can't make it and addressing them directly because I want to give them at least a little bit of the, sh the show and, and also let them know like I really do want to be there, but I just, it's not realistic. If, if we make a, let's just assume our profit one night is only 200 bucks and it costs me 300 to get there. Well, then what are we doing? We're just spending more money on the credit cards. So, so I am touring to some, um, as much as I can, the, the more drivable something is, the easier it is for me to get there instead of fly. Um, but, but I'm going to everyone I can, but I'm going to miss a whole lot, I think. Yeah. Are you, um, is there anything that you're doing to ensure like, are these, are these, essentially just straight up streaming not streaming um are they um just screenings on their own or are you trying to add in like other things to make them a little bit more event worthy uh or not event worthy what's the word i'm looking for but like just adding in like other interesting things that might appeal to that niche of um you know punk rock people horror loving yeah. people yeah so so that's kind of a thing that's it's a little up in the air so our local screening here, 100% is going to have two live bands. And they're actually the bands that, that played in the movie. So we think that's a really neat little thing to do and make it one big event. Yeah, um, that's killer. And then we're all, yes. And always trying to do Q and A's as best we can. That's another one. Um, the guys in California are still talking about setting up like punk rock shows that go with 
the screening and that's how I'd like every single screening. That would be really cool. It's just logistically, it's kind of difficult. Um, and then more, and then more money gets involved because, you know, a lot of bands are not willing to come play for free. Luckily ours are, but I'm, but I'm still cutting them in on the door. That's what I want to do for everybody. If anybody's helping out, I want them to get paid and hopefully we make some money back too. So we're trying to make it as much of an event as we can, but it's tough. Even something simple that I did is I created a drinking game uh, <laughs> and, and it's, and it's meant to go as like a DVD or a Blu-ray insert, but it's this drinking, all these drinking game rules and it looks really nice. Um, and it's even got the rules for straight edgers because I don't want to count anybody out. Uh, so we try to do things like that and just make it as fun and as much of, of an event as we can. But, but yeah, I wish, I wish I could come to each city and, and bring the ruckus as I like to say, but, it's yeah. Just not I love the drinking game thing though. And that like, that's the kind of thing that essentially turns into word of mouth marketing. Like that's the kind of thing that allows the movie to sort of live on and perpetuate itself within the niche without you having mm -hmm. to spend a dollar on marketing. So that's a really kick-ass idea. I'd love to see I'm how trying. that, yeah, how that I'm, goes. I'm trying, I'm trying to do everything I possibly can. And I'll, you know, and I'll be honest, I, a lot of what I've stolen from is, uh, your next, I love I love that movie and I just kept seeing all their posters getting just churned out and I never saw like physical versions of them I just saw these alternate posters online and it made me think like why not just keep you know it costs me nothing to spend an hour on my laptop you know on Photoshop trying to make something new and so I just I keep messing with it and churning things out and it's kind of like helped to build the buzz of the movie and generate momentum you know and it's just and there are things that I think are neat anyway. You know, the drinking game is like a super cool thing to me. Um, you know, I when, I when I was younger, we would always watch like Wayne's World or like The Shining or whatever and play a drinking game that we found online. So I thought, why not just give it to them um, so nobody else can make it for us later? Yeah, no, I love it, man. That's also a good case to it's something that I still need to do. I've been telling myself for like 10 or 15 years now that I just need to buckle down and learn how to design things like learn some goddamn photoshop already but I, i'm always down to help if you want man i'm kind of a photoshop nerd so let I, me know i might i might take you up on that because <laughs> i'm i'm really 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 inept when it comes to design and i've just sort of like faked my way through through everything all these years but one of these Thank days i'm gonna make. do it yeah exactly yeah. let's talk about festivals and um I, I don't know. Let's just let's just start with um, your plan for getting this thing out into the world through festivals initially. Like, how was um, what was your strategy for that? So um, I listened to a lot of what like Adam Green and Joe Lynch, what they talk about, what Kevin Smith has talked about with touring his films and spreading the word. Um, Kevin Smith is kind of my my favorite case because he tells this story about when he first showed Clerks and he was walking behind two guys as they left the theater. You know, guy one said to guy two, uh, what do you think about the movie? And guy two says, I didn't like it, but the fat guy was funny. And and Kevin Smith talks about how that Q&A might have made it so that guy two now will go back and try his other movies. Because instead of just shutting the door, he just watches the movie, doesn't like it. The Q&A and him being able to hear the filmmaker speak made that guy open to his future films. And that really impressed me. Um, I didn't think 
that we would take it out to the film festival circuit and all of a sudden like you'd meet distributors at the film festivals. I've been out to a lot of film festivals and I haven't met one distributor. Um, that's just not kind of how it goes. And I mean, the, maybe at some bigger like market festivals, you could find stuff like that, but you hear horror stories there too. So, so that wasn't really the plan. And I, I think if you, if your plan is to do that, I'll take it on the film festival circuit and all these deals will roll in. I don't think that's realistic. I think you're again, setting yourself up for failure. But for me, it was to meet the fans and like, you know, generate buzz about the movie so that if I self-distribute or I go with a little boutique distributor, that word of mouth is already kind of going. And yeah, and I wanna let people know, you know, like at this last festival, I'm funding a lot of the film festival circuit by donating blood plasma two times a week. I don't know if I had told you that. You did. And I think okay. it's awesome and something um, that I certainly wouldn't do myself, but props, <laughs> props to you, amigo. Well, and I joked at first that it's like a good story to tell Conan one day if I wind up on there, but, uh, but, I've, but I've been embarrassed about it and, you know, I, I struggle with it, like what, what I'm doing to myself and my body. Um, not that, not that plasma donation is really bad for you. I'm not saying that, but it's like, I'm already exhausted every week and stressed out. And so adding like two, two hour, two and a half hour long donations twice a week, it's like, is it worth it? And, and, you know, am I, am I where I wanted to be? You know, those kinds of questions are constantly like going over my head, especially while I'm laying there on a table donating with a needle in my arm. Um, and so I've been scared to talk about it publicly. You know, I've talked to a few people about it, but at this last festival, my girlfriend and producer, Shelby, she said, you know, you should talk about what you're doing. I think people would like to hear about it. And so I listened to her and I talked about it in front of the crowd. And I was really surprised by the reaction I got because I kind of expected like, you're gross, you're crazy. Uh, and instead, I got so much support, especially after the Q&A was over, people came up to me and I can't even count how many times our conversations ended with like, anything I could do to help keep the needle out of your arm, that kind of thing. And it was just, it was, it was a really interesting, um, or an interesting thing. And the whole weekend, like people were bringing other folks up to me and saying, this is that guy who's donating plasma to, to pay for his film festival circuit. So I, 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 it's hard to keep doing it and, and see it as a part of the journey to keep the dream alive. But, um, I think people like to hear about it. They want to, you know, it's like why it's why uh, commentary became a thing on DVDs and Blu-rays and why behind the scenes documentaries were so huge and hopefully still, still are. Cause I like those things. Um, I just think people like to hear about the struggle and what, and how passionate people are. So, so that's why I think that's what I think is important about the film festival circuit. Like if you're just going to put it into all these festivals and never attend any, well then you're not doing anything. You're just wasting money. But, but if you see it as more of a way to like meet people, build your fan base, like actually get to know people and like commune as, as filmmakers and as fans of horror and whatever genre you're interested in. then I think you're doing it right. Yeah. At least I hope, I hope I am. Yeah. So have you been targeting, um, specifically like a lot there? Cause I don't know how many you'd probably know better than me, but there are a good number of festivals at this point that are primarily centered around horror. Mm -hmm. Are those, is that the type of thing you've been targeting? Like, do you have a, or how are you, how are you essentially deciding what festivals are going to be worth your time and what festivals are going to have the right people at them and, and so on? 
Well, that's again a learning experience. We have attended some festivals and I will not name which ones, but that I will never ever submit to or support again. Um, but we, we did primarily target uh, horror, horror and thriller festivals. We do have a couple that are bigger than that. Um, and the one I was just at is called Genre Blast. So it's, and it's an amazing fest, so I don't mind name dropping them. Uh, but, but they had like strictly comedies, they had uh, action films, and then they had horror films. So it was kind of all over the place. Um, and, but, but for the most part, it's been uh, horror festivals. And a lot of what we've done is we've looked at films that we thought were comparable to us again, and we've just seen what festivals they play. And then slowly we've learned a little bit better to talk to other filmmakers and find out what festivals they enjoyed, thought were worthwhile, that kind of thing. Um, but we, we, we cast a fairly wide net when we started submitting, not as bad as some other people that I've met on the circuit. Um, and and it's, it's yielded pretty positive results. I think our selection rate is probably like 60% right now, which doesn't sound very good. No, but that's, that's good. And, and a lot of what we've been rejected for, we already kind of thought we weren't going to get into. Like when, when we submitted to South by Southwest, we knew it was a long shot, but we said, you know what, we're never going to know what could happen if we don't try. So we said, screw it through caution to the wind. Um, and what we've, this is the biggest tip I could actually give. I would, if, if you don't mind me taking a little walk oh. and telling people about this. Oh, let's do it. If people are rejected from film festivals, I think the shame and the guilt in you makes you get frustrated and you just you get angry at the festival and you're not really thinking clearly about what they actually like what that actually means for your film and what they may be going through so they have hundreds if not thousands of submissions and so um at the suggestion of my buddy john hale he's a filmmaker that i i met at a film festival and i saw him post online that he had thanked a film festival that rejected him and i thought why the hell am i not doing that like i not even as a strategic move, but like legitimately, I, I thank them for taking the time to watch my film. It's a bummer that I can't get all the feedback I want. And all that has yielded once I started doing that is positive results. I get feedback from people when I don't ask. They, they tell me how much they love the film, but it, it was this close to getting in, but instead another film that had a punk rock theme got in, or man, you were this close, but you missed it by a couple points, that kind of thing. Um, we, we've even had people say, you know, I don't think that you're a great fit for our festival, but what about this? Or we even had a festival that, that rejected us kind of by accident. It was this error of communication. And so I contacted him and said, hey, I thought you guys really liked the movie and we were going to get selected. And they, they said, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you weren't interested. That's how your email, your email read. Um, and so I said, no, I was like, it's okay. And they said, how about we set up your own screening because we love the film. And so now that festival that I didn't get into, A, they like the movie, and B, they're gonna set up a screening where we can actually make money off of it. So yeah, and, and I think you have to realize that like just because you didn't fit doesn't mean that they hate your movie. It just means you didn't fit. And, and, and why I hear these terrible stories of these filmmakers who write these festival programmers and yell at them and cuss at them. And it's like, they're just trying to do their thing too, you know, like just like we're independently struggling to make films, they're independently struggling to put on a killer fest, you yeah. know? And like it, it bears, like unless you make just like a, a film that was shot on something terrible, it's shaky, like it, it's a piece of garbage just technically, like 
no festival rejection is ever um, really indicative of the quality of your film because like programming, it, it's just a giant puzzle. Very often it comes down to, to length, how things are going to stack together back to back. Like it's, I don't know, it's, it's super complex and it really bears no, um, I don't know. I, I, I think it just comes back to that theme of like, you make something, you spend two or three years pouring like every ounce of your, your life into a feature. And that feature becomes your identity in a lot of ways, or like Mm -hmm. it becomes inextricably linked with your identity. So just any kind of rejection, like it, it feels personal, but when you look at the reality of like, especially considering just how many films are getting submitted to festivals these days, um, like you just have to learn not to take any of it personally because very likely it's not personal in any way, shape or form. Like they probably liked mm-hmm. your film like, or, you know, so I think that I would just add that there's, there's very rarely anything like getting rejected very rarely says anything about you, your film, what you made. It's just some logistical for, for some logistical reason it didn't work out and you have to keep oh. trucking. I really like the word logistical. Like you have to even think, so if two films score, you know, most of these fests, they have like a scoring scale. And so they have a rubric, right? And so if two films score exactly the same and one of those films is shot locally and the other is from across the country, why would you not pick the one that's local? You're probably going to get those people to attend. You're going to show appreciation for local filmmakers. Um, so, So even something like that, like you never have any idea why you were selected. But I think, golden rule man like just treat people kindly and and it's always gonna be i mean it's it's not gonna hurt anything that's for sure and oftentimes i think it helps yeah amen to that brother amen to that <laughs> um let's talk about the distribution side of straight edge kegger so you mentioned earlier that um a lot of the offers that you've been getting because I, I think you and i you and i talked maybe like a month or two ago um, I thought you mentioned you were getting like various offers and people, sales agents, distributors coming to you, making you maybe some laughable offers, some predatory mm-hmm. offers. Um, I'm just curious, I guess, how you've how you've gone about even getting to that point if they're not coming to you directly from the festival circuit. Um, a lot of them are a lot. This with this film, we're being approached by a lot more people, which is which is neat. Um, but then we also our lead actor Corey Kays, He's had a couple films distributed himself, uh, separate from us. And so, because of those contacts, he kind of said, "Hey, maybe you could submit to these folks and name drop me. Maybe that'll help." And so that kind of helped. And it kind of seemed like as as we went through and contacted people, they'd refer others, or we'd. Um, discover some other filmmaker that worked with another company and then we'd look there and so we just kind of send out emails with here's the trailer here's the poster and just like a little here's the log line and synopsis let's see if they're interested and we got a lot of responses that were really positive and we got a lot of offers compared to last time anyway but a lot of times what we found was that it sounded really great up front but then you have to look at the fine print. You have to really listen to what they're saying and look at what they type because there's a big, there's a big difference there. Um, for instance, what we've gotten a lot of is we promise you the first $50,000 up front. And we go, wow, that is amazing. We get the first 50,000 that we make, can't lose. Then you look at the contract and realize that they have 10 to $15,000 they have to clear before you can actually do that. So then I asked, you know, I straight up asked people, wait a second. So if our film makes exactly 15,000, 
your costs for taking it to market are 15,000. So that means I make $0. And I also can't get receipts from you on that $15,000 to make sure that happened. And in a roundabout way, the answer is, yeah, that's what it is. So it, the, the number one tip I could give people is you have to reach out to filmmakers. It's never been easier to do so. I've contacted so many people using Facebook and, and finding email addresses with IMDb Pro that sometimes I do that. But for the most part, it's just been Facebook. Can't hurt to send a message. Sometimes you'll never hear back. Sometimes you'll hear back and realize the person is a terrible communicator. But more, of, but more often than not, people will say, don't go with this distributor. Here's my terrible experience. Or lately, we've been there's a couple small boutique distributors where we're hearing from the filmmakers, here's the money that I have coming back, and it's looking pretty sweet. So that's how we've been, we've been approaching it, and it's been really helpful. Yeah, I love that. What kinds of, because um, I, I just love getting into the details on this. What specifically are you looking for in the contract, in the fine print, when a deal comes in? Um, number one, the rights that I want to keep. I mean, I, I have gotten some, some offers that actually did sound very fair, except they really wanted to have theatrical. And I just say, I just say no. Like, the, I know, you know, there's this temptation to just sign a distribution deal because then, then you've made it, you got distribution and, and that's not realistic. And so you have to protect yourself and set your limits. Um, and my limit is I keep theatrical rights and I don't care. I, I don't care if somebody wants to hand me a bunch of money up front. I mean, it depends how much that would be, but, but you know, if they say I'll give you $10,000 up front that, for a broke guy who's donating blood plasma, that sounds super tempting, but if they get all my rights, then I may never see another dime. And granted, I don't know what this tour is going to yield, but for all I know, we're going to make back our money just on the tour. And and when you sign a deal that's worldwide rights, like we did last time, your hands are tied. I mean, I'm just literally stuck. I basically have lost that, you know, that intellectual property that, that went away for seven years. It's like, I never made a movie. <laughs> and, and so I'm just, I'm just not willing to do that. Yeah. And seven years is honestly on the low end these days. Like the, yeah. the term lengths, like you, you know, this, if you've been getting deals, but very often they're in the 10 to 15 year range yep. now, which we is, hear a lot of 15 years. Oh my God. Years. That's no. Yeah. No. I'd be, I'd, I'd be 46 by the time that that came back to me by then I would probably like have long since given up. And so at least I, I think the more that you can kind of like piece it out, I guess. So like, we're probably going to sign a, a digital, like a VOD distribution deal with one company and then a physical distribution deal with another company. I keep my theatrical rights and merchandising and we haven't even touched overseas. So as you know, I get to see how three things work out instead of that one distributor that I put all of the eggs in one basket and just got screwed last time. Yeah. So for better or worse, that's how we're trying to do it. And I, I think that I, I feel more confident in how this is going to go, especially after talking to other filmmakers who are seeing what the money is looking like coming back. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Are there, um, I don't know, are you, what are you seeing in terms of um, like caps on expenses, especially marketing expenses in some of these, these deals that are coming your way? 
Yeah. So basically what I'm look, I'm basically saying if you have a marketing cap, then we aren't going to work together. And that sounds, that sounds unrealistic. Like they have their money that they have to make back too. I, I totally understand that. But first off there needs to be a cap. And second, you, it should be low, <laughs> but second, you need to talk to other filmmakers about how that deal wound up working because we have talked to filmmakers who got picked up by big distributors and I thought, well, they made it. And instead it's a horror story. Like you wind up hearing what that wound up yielding and it was just a little bit of money up front. And then they kept saying, oh, it costs us this and this and this, and it never ends and they never see a dime. So for me, it should be like my, the thing about the digital folks that we're probably going to go with is that it's a 50, 50 first dollar split. So they're basically taking the same risk that we are. Granted, it's kind of hard to like suck up the fact that we put up all the money, we put up all the effort, and they're going to take 50% as well, but their expenses are covered in that 50-50. So, so if we make a dollar, we each get 50 cents, and they could have spent $100 trying to do something. So that's their risk. They'd lose that you know, $99.50. Um, but, but then likewise... You know, if you make $2,000, you each get 1000 And then it makes, we, we both just made some money back. It does get a little frustrating when you think about, like, if we make 100000 then we only get 50000 and they get 50000 But, again, that's why I'm making it. They, they don't get worldwide rights to physical and digital and theatrical. Yeah. So that's is it is it all digital rights or because like I think this is something that um, Alex Ferrari mentioned when I, I think I interviewed him on like one of the first episodes of this show before he launched a similarly named show and I had to change the name of this one, mm -hmm. which what an ordeal that was. <laughs> um, but something he mentioned in the conversation about traditional distributors is even if they're taking um, digital rights for VOD platforms and and like SVOD and AVOD and all of that, um, very often you can carve out the rights to um, essentially sell the film from your, from your own site, from your own platform, even while they're taking those rights. Is that something that's in your, in your contract? I'm curious if it's even an it's, option. So that's a very good question. And I wish I had an answer to that, but actually we only got to see their short term contract so far uh, or short form. I'm sorry. And so they're about to give us the lengthy one and we're going to see what all that says. And that is something that I'm going to be paying attention to because I want to be able to figure something like that out. Um, I really liked, you had a guy on here, I wish I remembered his name, but he does um, like bicycle documentaries. Yeah, that's Mike Mike Dion. I actually just, okay, okay. oh, his, his interview just went out yesterday. Um, at least oh, at okay, I haven't listened to that one yet. Recording it, but yeah, that guy is such a gangster. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I, that really struck me and I thought, you know, especially we're going to have this October 17th screening that's going to be pretty huge and I don't know that we'll be able to figure it out in the amount of time we have right now but I was like man that's a perfect example of a screening that we could actually sell tickets to and stream the video online um, logistically I don't know that we're going to get that off the ground there's a lot going on right now but but I have been thinking about that stuff and it's something I definitely am going to be paying attention to but I, I haven't even seen what they're proposing in terms of the years basically the things that I know from these folks are the filmmakers I've talked to and what their returns look like and that it's a 50-50 first dollar split. Like that's what I know. Um, so I kind of can't, I'm actually antsy to look at the contract. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but I haven't gotten to. And we also have my buddy Sam Brown, he shot a um, behind the scenes documentary on the making of the film called In the Red, uh, the making of Straight Edge Kegger. And so I'm sorry, that keeps going off. In the oh, background. it's all good. 
Okay. Um, and uh, so we're actually seeing if they want the streaming rights to that as well. That's cool, man. Trying. So as we wrap this thing up, I'm just curious if you, um, I don't know if, if there's anything you want to leave people with. I get like, we've covered a ton of ground already in terms of like some of the, the psychological side of things, the, the intricacies of negotiating deals. But like, if there's anything that you could leave aspiring micro budget niche filmmakers, really anybody who's listening to this, um, any advice, words of wisdom you could leave them with, what would you say? I would tell them to stop and smell the roses and to have fun, like have fun because that's why you're getting into this, right? Like if you're getting into filmmaking because you want to be rich and famous, then stop. You're not going to be successful. Like you have to fall in love with the work and be passionate about it. You know, hopefully build a film family where you all like commune together as one and enjoy it and you make the same movie. And if, and if you're not doing that, then you're doing it wrong because you may never, you may never reach the, the top of the mountain like you intend to. But I think if you spend 30 years, who cares, trying to do this with your friends and this family that you grow, then you're successful already. Like I, it's easy for me to get bogged down by the, the dollars and senselessness of it all. Um, but I'm trying to switch my own thinking. Like it's advice for others as much as it is for myself that, that you got to enjoy it. You got to have fun or what the hell are you doing? Like stop, stop being stressed about it. Stop making movies. Like go spend your money on like a, a cool new toy instead of the movies. If, if you're not enjoying it, you know? Yeah. So, so I, as much as I'm bummed about my debt, it's like, I think I'd trade that debt any day of the week for having this experience with everyone. Yeah. I think it was like Amy Poehler who said it's at the end of the day, it's just about making cool shit with your friends. Like if you can do that, like what, what else can you ask for from, from life besides that? Yeah. That's perfect. That's see, just listen to Amy Poehler. Right. (laughs) So, um, if somebody wants to find you online, whether, I don't know if you have a website or anything like that, but if they want to see the trailer, if they want to, um, I don't know, stay up to date with your, your cool DIY tour, where can, where can people do that? Um, so the easiest thing to know about us is that I try to make it all like a one-stop shop. So anything you search with weird on top pictures, that's probably the easiest thing. Um, but I update a lot of things on my personal Facebook with Jason Zink, feel free to add me and we can talk about movies all day. Um, and then we have an Instagram for weird on top pictures. We have a Facebook page for straight edge kegger that I would really appreciate people to follow. But in general, you know, we have a website, weirdontoppictures.com. You can search weird on top pictures all over the place and find it. Hell yeah, man. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it, brother. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I could probably do this for another like two hours, honestly. Yeah, you and me both. If it weren't for the fact that I really need to eat something, otherwise I might just like <laughs> fall over and die. I could keep going yeah. for sure. Fair enough. I'm pretty hungry too. Well, right on. I think that's uh, I think that's a wrap. Thanks so much, dude. Thank you so much for listening. For the links and resources mentioned in this interview, as well as the full archive of Filmmaker Freedom episodes, 
just head over to filmfreedomshow.com. And while you're there, feel free to browse around the Filmmaker Freedom website and check out some of the other rad content, including the weekly newsletter. Every Sunday morning, I send out a variety of the most useful, inspiring, thought-provoking stories I've come across that week, as well as some other cool stuff. It'll help you build your skills, master your psychology, and keep up with this ever-changing business. So if you're ready for an email that you'll actually look forward to each week, just head over to filmfreedomshow.com newsletter. Also, if the ideas in this show resonate with you, you're a great candidate for Freedom Fighters, which is my private community just for entrepreneurial indie filmmakers. It's totally free to join, but there is an application process to get in. So if you're interested in surrounding yourself with a group of like-minded entrepreneurial filmmakers who will push you to succeed and help you grow, just go to filmfreedomshow.com community. And lastly, I'd just like to give one more shout out to my friends over at Music Vine for sponsoring this show. The groovy intro and outro music came straight from their library, of course, and there is loads more where that came from. So if you're a discerning filmmaker who needs quality music, just go to musicvine.com and use the code FILMFREEDOM for 25% off your next order. Once again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will see you in the next episode of Filmmaker Freedom. Peace. Peace.